chapter 10 this morning, Mark chapter 10. We're embarking upon a new chapter in Mark's gospel, and as the Lord would have it, we jump right into the matter of Jesus' teaching on divorce. That is one of the issues for which any expositor faces. You just go from one text to the next, and whatever the topic is, you deal with that topic, and that's what we believe God would have for us. I, of course, know that you know as well as I do that divorce itself is tragic in its consequences. I would like to know, just by a way of the show of hands, how many of you have either been directly or indirectly impacted by the tragedy of divorce? Now look at that. Almost every adult hand in this room went up. I, of course, have been the tragic recipient of divorce. My parents were divorced when I was around four years of age. Uh, having never met my father and being separated, I know, for many, many years, several different states apart from a relationship to him. And I know, for one, the tragic implications of divorce. I was talking with someone in between services this morning, and of course, as you know, it seems as though divorce is inching ever higher to the 60th percentile. That is that in the United States of America and frankly around the world as statistics are compiled, that nearly six out of ten marriages, every six out of ten marriages will end in divorce. And I remembered reading this week as well that for second marriages, that percentile is in the 70th percentile range. That seven out of ten people who marry for a second time will likely divorce. It affects us all. It affects us either directly or indirectly in so many ways. As parents, as children, as a spouse, as a family, friend, co-worker, colleague, it's absolutely undeniable, the effect of divorce. And I think that is probably why the Lord gives us as expository teachers the opportunity to deal with different arenas of controversy as they unfold before us. Now let's make no bones about it, divorce is controversial. The views of divorce are controversial. You scarcely can bring up the subject of divorce without heated or angry words about its import, about its tragic consequences, about its allowances, about its inevitability. And so, we want to speak about it. Now, as I thought about what I might share with you this morning, I thought, well, we could go right into the text of Mark chapter 10, and I could speak from Mark's gospel what Jesus' teaching is regarding divorce. But there are some things that are not contained in this portion of Mark's gospel that are contained elsewhere that help fill out our perspective on the matter of divorce. And I was 
thinking that it wouldn't be correct for me to simply teach on this topic from Mark's gospel and then have several of you maybe go out of here and say, well, that's not all that needs to be said regarding divorce. And that is true. And so I thought what I would do is to give you in the first couple of messages, because it's going to take us a while to go through this, the overall perspective on divorce, the big picture of what divorce is according to Scripture. And then, after we have taken the helicopter up and surveyed the scene, then we can go more closely to the text of Mark 10 and be able to plumb the depths of Jesus' teaching on divorce in that passage. For this morning, I want us to concentrate on three outline points that will set the stage for the biblical teaching on divorce. I don't know how far we will go, but we will at least attempt to give you three outline points or three principles regarding this very controversial matter of divorce. And the first one is this. We must say from the outset, as any faithful Bible teacher should, that the Bible unmistakably teaches that God's perspective on divorce is one of hatred. Hatred. God says, I hate divorce. And you know as well as I do that there are really only a few things for which Scripture records that God says, I hate And divorce is one of them. God hates divorce because it always involves a level of unfaithfulness. At some juncture within a divorce proceeding, it always involves unfaithfulness. It involves unfaithfulness to the solemn covenant of marriage that two people have entered into before God. And it brings great and harmful consequences to those partners and their children. Divorce in the Scripture is permitted as an accommodation to man's sin for the protection of the faithful partner by releasing him or her from the oppressive bondage of their covenant duties because when one is hard-hearted and unrepentant and unfaithful to those duties, then it is, it is of course, un- impossible for the innocent party to fulfill their obligations. But since, nevertheless, that divorce is only a concession to man's sin and is not a part of the original plan of God for marriage, all professing believers should, as God Himself, hate divorce and pursue it only when there is no other recourse. In other words, our perspective should be God's perspective. We should hate divorce with the kind of hatred with which God hates it. We should try to stay away from it at all costs. In Malachi chapter 2, and I want you to turn there this morning because this is a seminal passage in this regard. Malachi chapter 2, I want to take you to the very passage where God says He hates divorce. 
God, through the prophet Malachi, is indicting the children of Israel for their unfaithfulness, for their sins within their own family. He speaks of their corporate treacherousness as Judah has dealt treacherously in verse 11 of chapter 2. They've committed abominations in Israel and Jerusalem. Judah's profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. They've intermarried. They've joined in marriage relationships to the daughters of those who serve foreign gods. And when you come to verse 14, God, in essence, when He talks about dealing with them, says, Yet you say, For what reason? And this is the Lord's admonition. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. What kind of witness has God been? Because you, against the wife of your youth, have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In other words, God is building a case against the men of Israel because they have dealt treacherously with the wife of their youth, with their companion, with the one for whom they've made a solemn covenant, a promise. That's what the word covenant means. It's a promise that you will deal with your spouse not in a treacherous way, but in love, serving them. God says in verse 15, Not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. In other words, if you have any cognitive apprehension that your spirit is accountable before God, that you have a relationship not just to your wife on the horizontal plane, but you have a relationship vertically with God as well, then do not, if you have any sense of accountability to God and to your wife, to deal treacherously with her. And then that solemn statement in verse 16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. It's very apparent that the Jews in Malachi's time had begun to divorce their spouses at such an incredibly rapid rate and of course by the testimony of God's own word in that passage they had even divorced some of the Jewish women for the sake of intermarrying with foreign women who were serving false gods. Very serious. Because even that act is not just a physical act against your own wife. It's not just a physical issue between you and the wife of your covenant. And it's not just a physical issue of intermarrying with another woman and having physical relations. But God is saying by that very thing, look, by way of analogy, what you're doing on a physical plane, that's what you're doing spiritually as well. Spiritual idolatry, spiritual adultery. And when the, when the two things link together, as they always will, 
because the one you pursue that is wrong is the one you will pursue as though you're pursuing them for worship. Because you occupy your whole heart and your old mind, your whole mind to that person. You're pursuing that person as though you're pursuing them in the very worship expression of your whole heart and your old mo- whole mind being toward God. Spiritual adultery occurs as well. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God says this, A man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You say, I've really never understood what that one flesh idea means. What does it mean? It means two things, really. It means a lot of things by way of implication, but at least two things are factual about it that are clear and obvious. And one of those is this, that when a man leaves his mother and father and he cleaves, that's a very strong word. It's talking about a bond, almost as though it were speaking analogically of cement, and that you're, you're binding yourself together with that wife, and the two now become one indivisibly. There's an indissoluble union between the two. They now become one flesh. And it, of course, occurs in a physical way by their union with regard to their sexual intimacy. And when they come together as two and they become one by taking each other to be husband and wife, then they become one flesh before God. It's a strong bond. It's a permanent relationship. And it is for life. That's God's intention. That's God's plan. That's His purpose. That's why He created the institution of marriage. It's a living organism. And you come together for the purpose now not of being two people, but being an indissoluble union. And the obvious and second clear implication of that is that when you procreate, when you bear children, the two become one in the indivisible union of two people bearing a child. And that child becomes the very expression of the oneness of your relationship. Now, it doesn't mean that if you can't bear children physically because of the the curse, because of the fall, because of sin, it doesn't mean that you're not one flesh. That one flesh relationship occurs at the marriage union, at the consummation of that marriage union. But you can see the most visible expression of that union when you see that child beget from that relationship because then you can see that truly two have become one. Their genes are forever connected together. And on that very basis, beloved, God says divorce is the destroying of that one flesh relationship. It is the the ripping apart of what God has joined together. And that's why divorce is so devastating. Because it it is the, the, the ripping away of what God has joined together. That is precisely why when Jesus himself was confronted by the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19, and I want you to turn there as well, that is why Jesus himself says, what God has joined together, let no man, what? Put asunder. Some of your translations may say separate. And some of your translations may say what is the literal rending of that word, rendering of that word, and that is, let no man divorce. That's the word. The old word is put asunder. 
A newer word is separate, but that's not good for us because in our culture we have a legal term that the Bible does not recognize that's called separation. That's not what it's talking about. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, what God has therefore joined together, let no man divorce. In other words, Jesus has the same view of divorce that God the Father does as expressed through Malachi the prophet. Divorce is wrong. In Matthew 19.1 it says, When Jesus had finished these words, He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing Him or attempting to trick Him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Have you not read these things? Your Pharisees, your teachers of the law, your interpreters of Old Testament truth, and you have not read these things? It's obvious that the answer to your question is, no, it is not lawful. And what do they say in response? They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. In other words, they want to test and trick Christ, the new rabbi on the scene, into making a mistake. You see, at this time, there were many rabbis and many teachers, but two of them had come to the forefront, and they were representing two schools of thought with regard to divorce. One was the rabbi school of Shammai, and another was the rabbi school of Hillel. And one of these groups had a more loose interpretation of Moses' permission of divorce, and one of them had a very legalistic view of Moses' permission of divorce, and they wanted to trick Christ to either put him in one or the other category, preferably one that differed from them so that they could disagree with him, or at least, at the very least, have him say something for which he could be caught then in the very law of God. One thing they hadn't figured, Jesus wrote the Old Testament. And because He knew it, because He was the author of it, He could never be tricked. And they asked really two parts of the same question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if it, they had asked that question in that way, what would be the correct answer to that according to the Old Testament? Well, I just shared with you that Genesis 2.24 and Malachi 2 make it very clear that divorce is not to be granted. But that's not all of the Old Testament, is it? For in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1-4, to 4, in the daily interaction with men and women to each other, Moses, as the lawgiver and the judge of the people, realized that because sin had entered the world, because sin had entered the human stream, that inevitably there would be divorce. People would leave one person and go to another. And because of the inevitability of that, Moses wanted to regulate remarriage. 
and not try to proliferate adultery all over the place because one would leave one and go to another. Then they would leave that one and go to another. Then they would leave that one and go to another. And so because of that sinful tendency of men and women to divorce from each other or maybe not even to divorce, just to leave someone and go to someone else, Moses had to set up legislation that regulated the remarriage of people to each other. And what he said was, of course, if one leaves his spouse, writes her a certificate of divorcement, and then marries another, and then divorces that one, he cannot go back to the first one because the union has been broken. That indissoluble union has actually been ripped away. You cannot go back to the other person. It is unclean. It is against the law of God. You see, Deuteronomy 24 is really not hankering the issue of divorce. It's really teaching the issue of the regulation of remarriage. But it does mention divorce. And what the Pharisees had done was they had ripped that Deuteronomy 24 passage out of its context. They go to Christ and they say, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, if that's all they had said, and if Jesus had said, It is unlawful for that to occur at any time, then they would have said, Aha! Moses and Jesus disagree. Because Moses permitted divorce to occur in some cases. But they hang themselves by their own question because they didn't ask it in that way. Notice what they said in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now that's a much simpler statement. Why? Because the obvious answer for that, according to Genesis 2.24, Deuteronomy 24, and Malachi 2 is, it is wrong for any reason at all if that's the way you're going to ask the question. Because if you say any reason, then you've thrown every reason into the pot and clearly divorce is not granted for any reason at all. It isn't. You can't just say, because they burned the toast because they're not lovable, because I've fallen out of love with them, because I'm infatuated now with someone else and that must mean that God is leading me to that other person. It's not because I want to leave, it's because my attraction has led me to someone else or whatever reason people give, especially these days. And to that answer, Jesus unequivocally states, it is not lawful for someone to divorce their spouse for any reason at all. It's not right. And so he can come alongside the Pharisees and say, Men, you have it all wrong. You've misinterpreted, you've reinterpreted the law, the law of Moses. You've misunderstood what he said, and I'm going to tell you unequivocally, it is not right to divorce for any reason at all. He even goes on. Not only does he go back to the beginning of creation in Genesis 2.24 in verses 4, 5, and 6, but he says in verse 8, the only reason that Moses permitted this was because of your hardness of heart. And isn't it interesting that Jesus says your hardness of heart? You very Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be the religious elite, it's your hardness of heart. But it's not just your hardness, it's anybody's hardness of heart. That's the only reason that divorce is even in our world, because sin is in our world. But from the beginning, verse 8, Jesus says, it has not been this way. It's been all fouled up because of sin. 
and I say to you, and this is a very important passage, and you say, why do you go to Matthew instead of Mark? Because this exception clause that I'm about to read to you is in Matthew and it's not in Mark. And if I had just exposited the truth of Mark's gospel, we wouldn't know about this exception and therefore we wouldn't have the big picture of what divorce is and where it's allowed. He says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. What's he saying? Jesus is saying all divorce is out of bounds. All of it is out of bounds. You ask me the question, can a man lawfully divorce his wife for any reason at all? And I'm going to reiterate to you that it was not that way from the beginning. Sin is in the world. The hardness of your hearts, it's true, Moses did permit it and regulated remarriage because of it. But I'm telling you, just as God the Father has announced it through Malachi the prophet, that it is absolutely wrong, out of bounds, morally reprehensible for divorce to occur. Except in the case of immorality. And that's our second outline point. Even though it is true that God's perspective on divorce is that He hates it, and even though Jesus Christ Himself has said unequivocally, even in an attempt to be tricked, that divorce is not permissible according to God, He does say in verse 9, except for the cause of immorality. And that gives us a biblically allowable ground for divorce. You say, explain it. Well, I better. Because, boy, has this been confused and controversial in the church. Here's what Jesus is saying. All divorce is out of bounds. 99.97% of divorce is out of bounds, except... When someone, in a hard-hearted, unrepentant way, is pursuing someone who isn't their wife or husband, and if they do that for the protection of the innocent party so that they no longer have to live under the reality of being married but seeing a faithless, sexually sinning spouse... It is allowed for divorce to occur. That's the exception. When it speaks of immorality here, someone might say, well, what immorality is that? Well, this particular word is the word porneia, and it's where we receive the English connotation pornography. And this particular word is very strategically used by Christ here because it's referring to any type of of sexual sin. It's not just talking about adultery in a marriage relationship. It's not just talking about intercourse that a, that a man or a woman has outside of their marriage relationship. That's what we classically define as adultery. If Jesus had wanted to use that word, that's the word moikeia. But He uses porneia because that is the word that is the most elastic in the use of these sexually charged terms to speak of any kind of sexual activity. You say, why would Jesus do that? I think it's very simple, frankly. 
Don't you know, because of what you see in our own culture and even paraded across our television sets in recent months, that someone could say, well, listen, I've been faithful to my spouse because I haven't committed intercourse with another woman or another man. I haven't done that. So technically speaking, they have no grounds to divorce me. But you see, porneia is a more inclusive word. It's not speaking just of the physical act of adultery in a marriage. It also could be referring to any kind of sexual activity. It could be homosexuality. It could be even under Old Testament legislation, bestiality, incest, some other kind of weird and wicked sin for which people involve themselves, and all could be classified under that general term, porneia. And so Jesus is saying there's only one exception, and that one exception is for rampant, unrepentant, hard-hearted, sexual sinning of any kind, but that's the only exception. Otherwise, for any other reason that a man or a woman are predisposed for whatever whims or desires or frustrations they have about their spouse, they cannot divorce. And this is Jesus' clear teaching. By the way, did you know that in the Old Testament, God is even spoken of in spiritual, analogical terms of divorcing faithless Israel? It's true. In Isaiah chapter 50, there's a very, very interesting word that speaks of God's dealing with Israel. And it actually speaks about the writing by God of divorce papers and sending faithless Israel away. And it's using, in an analogy, their spiritual adulteries, their hard-hearted, unrepentant spiritual adulteries. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Sent away is a synonymous term with divorce. Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your iniquities and for your transgressions. Your mother was divorced. In other words, Israel was divorced by God because of their spiritual adulteries. Hard-hearted, unrepentant, and there came a time when God said, Enough. Enough. Jeremiah uses the same language in Jeremiah chapter 3. I mean, this is very incredibly strong language by God Himself. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3, verse 6. Then the Lord said to me, In the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, now this is important. When God says He's thinking about something, it's important. He says, I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. See the hard-hearted nature of it? And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. See, they're broken up, broken up into two kingdoms at that time. And I saw that for all of the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had divorced her and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Boy, what strong language. 
And what God is saying by that is, look, His Spirit will not strive with man forever. There comes a time when hard-hearted, unrepentant, spiritual adulteries even means that God the Father Himself could write a writ of divorcement, and apparently He did so. And so it is that in the New Covenant, there very well may be times, not just in some spiritual, adulterous way, but even physically between a husband and a wife, that one of those in that relationship goes and pursues foreign women, foreign men. And it could happen in such a hard-hearted, unrepentant way. And beloved, it could be even from someone who professes that they know Jesus Christ. You and I have no doubt heard, maybe even experienced, maybe even counseled someone who says, I profess Christ. Maybe they're involved in the local church. Maybe they've been involved in ministry in that local church. Maybe highly involved. Maybe even the pastor of the church. And you hear about sexual sin in the camp, and you hear about someone when they're confronted, maybe through the process of Matthew 18 and church discipline, and they don't respond to such a summons to obedience and faith, and they say, no, I want this relationship. I don't want the previous one that I had. I want to reach out to this other relationship. This is the one I want. That's what I'm going to pursue. And in the face of all kinds of pressure that God applies through the instrumentality of the local church, they say, no. I'm going to continue to pursue my sin. And you know, as well as I do, the tragedy of divorce in those situations. And they go out in a hard-hearted, unrepentant, sexually sinful way, and they pursue that relationship or relationships. And because of what Moses has taught and because of what Jesus says here in Matthew 19.9, in those limited cases, and they are limited, in those limited cases, it is permissible for a person be given a writing of divorce. That's what the Word of God teaches. Are there any other places, any other ways for which divorce is allowable? One more, and that's it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to turn there. And I know, beloved, that by teaching these things, there are those who disagree, some of them friendly, some of them brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them endeavoring just as I am to understand the truth of God's Word. They have a different read on these passages. They have a different interpretation. We can fellowship with them. We can try to understand where they're coming from. We want them to understand where we're coming from. But this is the Bible teaching of the Bible Church of Little Rock. And this is what the elders have affirmed. And this is what we teach. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says in verse 12, But to the rest I say, not the Lord. In other words, he's not saying that this word is not as powerful as the Lord's, not as, as authoritative as the Lord's. No, he's simply saying the Lord never dealt with this particular specific issue. Now I'm going to deal with it. And that's true. The Lord never dealt with this following scenario. Paul says, But to the rest I say, that if any brother that is a Christian has a wife who is an unbeliever. So now we have a believing husband and an unbelieving wife. If that wife is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Some of your translations may have the, 
the phrase leave her. That's the Greek word karidzo, and that's the exact same word that's used in other places to refer to divorce. Some of your translations may in fact have the word divorce. Mine does. And what Paul is teaching is this. In a pagan society, maybe this couple comes to a place where one in the relationship has been confronted with the gospel message and has believed. And they begin to live their Christian life in that community. And yet their spouse, their wife, has chosen not to believe. They've rejected the gospel. Or they at least are saying, that's not where I'm coming from, at least for the time being. Whatever the scenario is, they're not a believer. And I'm sure that as Paul was answering questions in Corinth, and one of the questions inevitably came up, look, if I come to Christ and my wife does not, should I divorce that person because now we're spiritually incompatible? Should I divorce that person and should I then go look for someone inside the local church who is a believer so that I can have a relationship both physically and spiritually with them where we're truly one flesh, both physically and spiritually? Paul, is that what you want me to do? And he says, no. I want to tell you that if you have an unbeliever for a spouse, she consents to live with you, you must not divorce her. And then he changes the order. And a woman, a believing woman, a Christian lady, who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce him. And we know that's true because... That's the very thing that Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, doesn't he? He says, look, if you are a believing wife and you have an unbelieving spouse, you should live in such a chaste, respectful way toward them that you might even be used by God as an instrument to bring them to faith in Christ. By, by any means, by all means, don't leave the relationship. Don't divorce the person. Stay in the relationship so that you can be a sanctifying influence on that unbelieving person. Boy, what a witnessing opportunity. What a witnessing opportunity. You don't have to go to the market. You, you don't have to go to the, to the car wash. You can be a living witness in your own home as you live out your Christian faith to an unbelieving person. So Paul says, by no means divorce. By no means. He says, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified. It doesn't mean they're a Christian. It means there's a sanctifying influence on the part of the believer. They're sanctified through their wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. In other words, that witness, that testimony, that Christianity is right there, being lived out right there in that home. Boy, what a great thing. What a, what a gospel witness. That salvation that could be granted to that person could be through the very mechanism of that sanctified spouse. He even says, For otherwise your children are unclean, verse 14, but now they are holy. doesn't mean they're Christians either. It means that that sanctifying, God-ordained influence in that home could very well be the instrument to bring those children to a place of servitude to Jesus Christ. I've even seen situations, and maybe you're the recipient of it, where the children have been brought faithfully by the believing spouse into the local church, nurtured in the, in the grace of the Lord. They come to faith in Christ, and then later on, they are the very ones and not the spouse to lead their mom or dad to Christ. Boy, what a great thing that is. Dad, why don't you come to church with us? Dad, why, why, why don't you believe in Christ? Dad, don't you see the changes that have occurred in my life? Dad, you need to repent of your sins. You need to 
You need to follow Jesus Christ. And sometimes, just because of the very relationship there and because of the tenderness that's developed, that person, soft and supple by the leading of the Spirit of God, breaks that hard heart through the instrumentality of those children, and that person comes to Christ. So Paul is saying, by no means do you divorce the person. By no means. Look at what kind of ministry you can have. Because he even says in verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? In other words, you will definitely not be able to, at least through your instrumentality, if they leave, if you divorce them. How do you know that you might not be very well used by God as the instrument of their salvation? Stay in that relationship. But, and here's the only other biblically allowable reason for divorce, and it's right here. Look at verse 15. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, let him divorce. Carizo. The brother or the sister, that's the believing person, is not under bondage in such cases but God has called us to peace. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you try to hang on, if you try to hang on to that relationship, and it's not that they consent to live with you, it's that they don't consent to live with you, they don't want your Christianity, they don't want your righteous life, in fact, they're turned off by it, or maybe it's just by your life in general. Maybe you have a life of integrity and uh, that doesn't allow them to uh, misappropriate the funds or sign the wrong kind of IRS form or whatever it is. And so they say, hey, I can't do the things I want to do. I'm out of here. Too much scrutiny here. Or maybe it's any number of reasons. But they say, as an unbelieving partner, I'm gone. Paul says, don't try to hold on to that. If they consent to live with you, stay there. Work for Christ. But if they do not want that, then don't try to hang on, because if you do, there is incredible bondage. Let them leave. Let them go. If that's what they're going to do, let them do it. That's what we'd say to someone who professes faith in Christ, and they're a spouse to someone in our congregation, and yet they reject the Word of God, and they reject the counsel of the local church, and they go off, and they have an adulterous relationship with someone else, and it's hard-hearted and unrepentant. There's nothing we can do about that. But what God says to us, either inside the church who has a professing, believing person or someone outside the church who is not a professing believer, in both cases, if they take off, what's our response? Let them go. Let them go. God hasn't called us to bondage, but to peace. Peace, that means not this peace in my heart. It means reconciled relationships as far as it depends on you. And if it can't be done by your hand, and if that person is going to reject you and what you stand for, let them leave. Let them divorce. God's going to call you to peace. Now you say, can they remarry? Can the person who has hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery committed against them, if that divorce occurs, can they remarry? And if there is a divorce, oh, what kind of relationship does that innocent party have within the fellowship? Are they going to be hit with a stigma the rest of their life if they permitted such a thing? Are they forever stigmatized because of that? What about a person who's experienced a divorce maybe early on in their life? It wasn't their fault. They were the innocent party. Someone leaves the relationship either by professing Christ and then abandoning Him or maybe not professing Christ at all and they leave the relationship and the divorce occurs. 
Can that person serve as a leader in the church? Can they be an elder? Deacon? What about remarriage? Can you just remarry to anyone? What are the parameters? Can you marry an unbeliever? I mean, there are a whole host of questions that are related to this. That's why the controversy is what it is. Because there are a myriad of questions which desperately need answers. And I confess to you that there are often situations and scenarios. Maybe someone comes to the church and they say, I've just come to Christ and I've been divorced four or five times. That's happened within my own family. That's happened with my own situation. And they come and they say, what is my marital status? Or they come and they say, I've just come to Christ, I've been divorced before. Or maybe they say, I've never been divorced before, but I'm married now, but separated. What does the Bible say about that? What's my marital status? Should I divorce this person? It doesn't appear as though they're going to be coming back. Should I wait? Should I wait forever? What if someone in the church unbiblically divorces? They don't have these two biblical grounds that we talked about, and they divorce. Can they, are they free to remarry someone else? Paul has a word right here in 1 Corinthians 7 for them. I mean, these are sticky, sticky questions for which often there are no easy answers. It's like trying to unscramble an egg. I mean, how, how can you fit all of the things back together again? How can we assess someone who appears over the life of their, their marriage to someone who's the second marriage, and maybe their, their marriage to that second person has been exemplary, and maybe that's occurred for 25 or 30 or 40 years? That person a viable candidate for the office of elder, for deacon? Are they forever disqualified? What are the answers to all these questions? Well, you're going to have to come back next week because we're out of time. And we want to be faithful to give you the answers as we best understand it from God's Word in all of these areas. I want you, if you will, to bow your heads. And as you do, I want you to know that it is not this church's desire at all to lower the standard of God's Word with regard to divorce and remarriage. It isn't. It isn't at all. If God's Word says it, then that's the way it is. And we come alongside people with grace and mercy people who might have had multiple divorces and multiple remarriages or someone who's just had one and yet it's been a sticky situation, they come to us and they say, help me, help me. If God's Word sets itself against their desire or their situation, we will tell them lovingly, but we will tell them. And yet at the same time, one thing we don't want to do one thing we cannot do is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, exceed that which is written. You know, it would be so much easier to say no divorce, no remarriage for any reason of any kind whatsoever. It would make it so easy because our counsel to everyone who would come who's either had a divorce or who is contemplating one to say you can't do this. No divorce, no remarriage for any reason at any time. And yet I believe that that is exceeding that which is written. Because the exception clause is here in Matthew 19.9. It is here. Jesus himself says, accept. And we must accept the exceptions. 
And in those limited cases, we must come alongside those hurting people and we must say to them, we know that you're not entirely without fault. No one is sinless in a struggling marriage situation, but we know this, there are those who are more seriously responsible. And they are the ones who have decided to leave, to divorce. And we want to come alongside you and we want to help you. And if you, in fact, are a part of the exception clause that Jesus himself gives or Paul, we want to minister grace to you. We want to flood you with grace because we know that you've been hurting. And that's what the body of Christ is here for. We want to come alongside those of us who are hurting in these ways. And there are some of you I know who have come to Christ out of any number of difficult marriage questions. And if you've come to Jesus Christ, maybe even through the crucible of a divorce, we want you to know, as Paul says, but such were some of you. But you were cleansed. You were washed. You were sanctified because of Jesus Christ. You can start anew and afresh. It may not mean all of the consequences are gone. It may be that inevitable relationships need to be mended. And it may mean that children which have been born to that relationship are a constant reminder of the past. But one thing we know God takes us where we are and He builds us up and He ministers to us. And there is no sin, certainly not the sin of divorce, which is so ugly and so heinous, which can't receive the forgiving grace of God. Lord, I pray for each person here. There may be several here this morning, unlike me and others, who've had no tainting of any kind of divorce situation, either directly or indirectly, and we praise God for that. And yet there seems in our culture to be so many who are so intertwined with these relationships, stepmothers and fathers and half-brothers and sisters and all kinds of intertwined situations and marriages and divorces and remarriages. Lord, it's sometimes so much that one would want to throw up their hands and say, how can we unscramble the egg? But we know you can because you give us your word and you encourage our hearts to study, to show ourselves approved and to give the right kind of counsel to your church. We pray that we have done so. We know that there's so much more to be said, so many questions yet to answer. May we do so with the power of your spirit and with the truth of your word. We ask that you administer to those here in whatever station of life they find themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.